Hey, welcome to the Gentle Rebel podcast, where we talk about navigating life's harsher edges with a spirit of compassionate creativity. I'm Andy Mort, I'm a songwriter and creativity coach, and I love exploring the power that gentleness can have in changing our world from the inside out. At the start of the book, The Highly Sensitive Person, Elaine Aaron shares this lovely quote by E.M. Forster from the essay, What I Believe. He says, I believe in aristocracy, though. If that is the right word and if a Democrat may use it, not an aristocracy of power, but of the sensitive, the considerate. Its members are to be found in all nations and classes and all through the ages. And there's a secret understanding between them when they meet. They represent the true human tradition, the one permanent victory of our queer race over cruelty and chaos. Thousands of them perish in obscurity. A few are great names. They're sensitive for others as well as themselves. They are considerate without being fussy. Their pluck is not swankiness, but the power to endure. I love this quote. There's so much in there to sort of, yeah, kind of get your teeth into and to to kind of reflect on. And in this episode, I want to um, kind of be mindful of that as we go back into the core of sensory processing sensitivity. This is something I've been wanting to do for a while because I've, there's been a lot that I've shared and written about over the years around this idea of sensory processing sensitivity and high sensitivity. Um, and I just want to kind of bring together some of the foundational ideas that have really shaped so much of my own personal um, journey of, of self-development and growth over the past 10 years and also informed so much of the work that I've um, felt compelled to create and to commit to um, and to share. Um, until I'd read a blog post about it, I had absolutely no idea what processing sensitivity was. It was back in, I think, about 20, 2012. Um, you know, I'd seen the term highly sensitive person um, a few times uh, around, you know, online, you'd kind of come across it. Um, but I'd never really paid any attention. I'd never sort of clicked through to to learn anything about it. Um, because, I mean, to be honest, the, the idea of being a highly sensitive person um, didn't really resonate. It wasn't something that I saw myself in, in, to, in terms of that that term on the surface. But then I saw uh, questions like, you know, do you think about and notice little details that others uh, are disinterested in or seem to ignore? Um, perhaps you long to get away from loud noises and bright lights and overwhelming situations. I mean, you spend a lot of time worrying about how other people are feeling and you absorb the the feelings of others and you know what's needed and all of these kinds of things. Um, and so I proceeded to go through uh, Elaine Aaron's sensitivity scale test on hsperson.com um, and discovered something that really helped a lot of stuff make sense for me. Um, and in this episode, I want to kind of yeah share the process that I went through in the in the year or so after taking that test, um, after I'd read the highly sensitive person book for the first time as well. Um, I kind of embarked on uh, at first an inadvertent writing project in which I was kind of breaking down a lot of the points on the test, a lot of these things that the characteristics of high sensitivity or sensory processing sensitivity, and I kind of reframed parts of my life and the stories that I. Um, had kind of told myself the experiences that I'd had growing up in light of this new discovery. So it'd be great to just start with some basic core definitions. You know, what is sensory processing sensitivity? I spoke with author of Confessions of a Sensitive Man, Bill Allen, um, a while back, who shared uh, Elaine Aaron's uh, DOES, DOES acronym, which she uses uh, and has been using as a, a really succinct way to define 
the cluster of traits that make up sensory processing sensitivity that make up uh, what she describes as highly sensitive people. Um, so yeah, this is, this is Bill kind of going through those four um, slash five characteristics of sensory processing sensitivity. And Dr. Aaron's got a neat little acronym she uses for, uh, to describe the trait. It's, it's an acronym that forms the word does or D or do's. I don't know. She's got it both ways. It's D-O-E-S. And D stands for depth of processing. This is the one thing that we do more, as you've talked about, that depth. That is something that really resonates with a lot of highly sensitive people is the fact that we take things and deep dive on it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we take information. Sometimes it can get locked into rumination and overthinking. But for the most part, we take information and grind it down so that we get the, every bit of uh, data we can get out of it, every bit of information we can get out of it. The second thing is a tendency towards overstimulation or what we all like to call overwhelm, which is we just get bombarded. If you've got your aperture for picking up sensory data open wide all the time, which is what we tend to have, you're going to get overwhelmed if you're out, in the, out and about in the world. And so we need time to recuperate, rest, and, and so we do need this downtime so that we can and get ourselves recalibrated and get back out in the world again. The third letter, E, has actually a double meaning. It has, a, a, we have a huge capacity for empathy. You know, we use our mirror neurons. We see people, we can empathize with them at a very deep level. And so that tends to color the way we interact with people. We, we can feel their pain. We can feel their happiness. We can feel all kinds of things. Nothing magical about it. It's based in science. It was saying the mirror neurons process in our brains. The other part of it is the emotional reactivity part. We tend to be fairly emotional people. Things move us. Things affect us. Uh, and largely because of our sort of uh, emotional um, makeup. And then finally, there's the last letter S, which is... Um, I like to think of it as sensory acuity, but uh, what Dr. Aaron spells it out is sensory, picking up sensory subtleties. These are things like, you know, the environment where you're picking up things that other people aren't, aren't seeing or hearing or, or whatever. And it's that nuancing ability, I think, that gives us one of our greatest gifts, and that's the ability to, to, to find things around us um, and be able to make connections, connect the dots, helps a lot with creativity. You know, if you're in the creative areas, that's one of the reasons why so many musicians, artists, writers are highly sensitive people because they, they have that capacity for creativity. And part of that is being able to pick things out and see things in a different way than, than a lot of people do. So those three, those four letters, D-O-E-S, depth of processing, overstimulation, emotional reactivity, and empathy, and, and sensory uh, subtleties. That's what makes us highly sensitive. So, yeah, it's a really useful um, frame for this whole thing because um, there's, I mean, as, there's, a, there's a lot written about high sensitivity. There's a lot of com confusing stuff um, a lot of the time as well. So it's really nice just to have that succinct definition that you can just come back to and like, okay, this is, this is what we're talking about. Um, other things that Elaine Aaron writes as uh, what sensory processing sensitivity is not, um, she says it's not introversion because 30% of highly sensitive people are extroverts. Uh, it's not a disorder. 
And while there are crossovers at um, the kind of surface or symptomatic level, uh, i.e. in terms of the, the effects that we might experience, it's not the same as sensory processing disorder. That's a different thing altogether. Uh, it's not the same as ADHD or PTSD or high-functioning autism. So, uh, yeah, if you're kind of confused about all of those, that, that that's something to sort of delve into a little bit and, and make sense of and differentiate between those things. Um, it's not more common in women. Uh, equal numbers of men and women have been shown to uh, to have sensory processing sensitivity. Um, and it's not something you can eliminate. It's largely innate. So it's not sort of socially conditioned into us. It's a, it's a part of our uh, genetic makeup, so to speak. So, yeah, sensitivity is how responsive our nervous system is to certain stimuli. It's not something that we can turn off. It's our natural reaction to the world when our bodies and our minds are kind of left to their own devices. Um, every person on the planet is sensitive in this respect to different different degrees. Um, and I think it's, it's really helpful, a lot of the literature now talking about this kind of spectrum of sensitivity as well. Um, and we all, you know, we all respond to stimuli um, and we all respond with a, with a differing uh, level of uh, reactivity and for highly sensitive people so those with high uh, with sensory processing sensitivity just happens more deeply and more acutely um, and this is a, a part of human evolutionary history it's a trait very helpful uh, in spotting dangers early enough to avoid the harm that could come from them so it's a it's a, both a, an individual trait but also a trait that belongs within the community within our wider society it's a really important part of that social ecosystem so before i share some of the uh, reflections and the stories that i had as i was kind of processing uh, what it what, like when i first discovered um, high sensitivity and you know what it meant for for my life i want to just say something quickly about labels this is a conversation i've had more uh, than any other over the years um, it's this around this label of highly sensitive person um, it's one I know a lot of people um, struggle with in different ways. And as I said earlier, the, the reason I didn't go near these ideas for a while uh, was because I didn't kind of resonate with this this um, term, highly sensitive person. You know, I didn't feel myself reflected in it. Um, I, I, I don't think that was because I was afraid of being labeled by it as, as much as it was just I don't connect with it. Um, but trying to name something that isn't widely understood or, or encouraged at a kind of wider societal level, it's a really tricky minefield. You know, how do we allow people to find um, the truth about themselves in this, in this way through their uh, awareness of, uh, you know, and learning about um, sensory processing sensitivity? I mean, I've personally started to hold the labels much more loosely and to kind of use different things depending on who I'm talking to and, 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 adapting language to speak the language that the other person resonates with um, and I realized actually in a conversation with uh, Tom Falkenstein that the uh, the thing that actually disconnects me from the term highly sensitive isn't the word sensitive but it's the word highly um, you know I'd always assumed the sensitivity sensitive that was that's the word that carries all this baggage that is, is problematic but actually there's something really evocative about the word high the word highly um, you know, it can get confused with with hyper, you know, hypersensitivity. 
um, high reactivity, highly strung, high maintenance. You know, these are ways of describing um, a person who we maybe think of as as too much of something, you know, demanding um, a lot of other people around them, demanding stuff of the world around them um, in order to, to be part of um, a community or a group or a relationship. This, this highness, so to speak, indicates um, something that affects other people. It affects and impacts the people in the world around the person who is, you know, highly strung or high maintenance. But sensory processing sensitivity isn't um, about demanding others. It's not a demand placed on others. It's a a way of being in the world, a way of orientating around um, with uh, towards the world around us. And I found peace with it when I started thinking of deep sensitivity, you know, deeply sensitive people. It's not a perfect term by any stretch of the imagination, but it evokes what I think is at the heart of this, which is a rooting. It's a grounding. It's a, a slowness, an experience of richness and depth, a lower frequency oscillation that feels warm and expansive rather than this kind of high frequency, high pitched, piercing vibration that people can't tolerate being around for very long. Um, that kind of, for me, is evoked by this this term high sensitivity. Um, in any case, I, I want to say that this is this is more about the ideas than about the labels. Uh, this isn't about tribalism or setting ourselves apart as a special group, whatever. I think the vision has to be looking at, you know, how do we integrate sensitivity within the whole of human life? You know, sensitivity is a trait within the social ecosystem, as I said, when it infuses into it and it it is able to really enhance the community for everybody. Um, And I suppose the problem with, you know, the world as it is, a very globalised world, um, we we kind of easily lose perspective of what what makes um, community work at localised levels, where actually difference is integrated and it's reflected from the inside out. Um, and so when you kind of pan out on a global scale, differences cluster together, they gather together and, and sort of the, the, we get these sort of tribal um, gatherings of people and we get kind of caught in, um, I don't know whether it's uh, a, a kind of belief that we must fight for power and rights for our own little group. Um, and it's really important that this is not what happens with sensory processing sensitivity. Um because that's not the the point and to get bring back that em forster quote it's like now you find this everywhere it's peppered through the world through different communities and that's where it needs to be and so this is about integrating it in healthy and inviting ways um, which requires everybody to have a sense of understanding about sensitivity and and, and its uh, benefits to everybody and everything um i wonder if the future might be a move towards a bunch of different ways to describe sensory processing sensitivity, you know, with different metaphors, different language, depending on, you know, who, who is being spoken to and who is doing the speaking. Um, and, and to kind of hold that certainly the, the DOES, the does acronym, the, the core of the, uh, of what is being researched, what's being discovered about this trait, um, holding that at the core, but then using these different, um, I don't know, uh, surface level descriptions to, um, to to speak to different groups, depending on, you know, what they resonate with. Um, I know Tracy Cooper recently set out his intention to start using the term high sensory intelligence as his alternative to 
high sensitivity. This is what he said on his um, website. He said, I'm not offering high sensory intelligence as a replacement term for sensory processing sensitivity. Uh, SPS, um, sensory processing sensitivity, is the clinical scientific name that you'll see in peer-reviewed journal articles. Um, SPS will always be the official name of the trait originated by Elaine Aron. The pop culture term uh, that is used out in the world, though, needs to be immediately positive in tone, free of any negative stigma and purpose-driven. Highly sensitive person does not fulfill that role. I believe that high sensory intelligence can serve us quite effectively. Um, if we truly wish for sensory processing sensitivity to reach the 15 to 20% of the world's population with this natural and neutral personality trait, we need to be adaptable enough in our messaging to recognize when a pivot is necessary to move away from the stigma attached to a simple term. In short, there's a better term available that is adequately descriptive of the DOES core features of sensory processing sensitivity that is positive in tone and stigma-free. That's high sensory intelligence. Um, so yeah, I wonder what you kind of uh, think of that. I mean, I also think like it's we need to be able to reach more than the fifteen to twenty percent of the world's population with um, sensory processing sensitivity. It's about reaching everybody. It's about integrating this into the whole. I think that feels really important. Um, and I wonder if the necessary pivot is actually um, either to use um, sensory processing sensitivity like exclusively to describe this, um, which I'm, I'm not sure I'm massively in favor of or to allow this flow of other descriptive terms to emerge like this like high sensory intelligence that is going to speak to um, a certain number of people in that kind of positive way um, but maybe there are other terms that we might want to uh, use as well to speak to other people because there are going to be there I know um, you know we kind of had a conversation about this um, in the haven and we're kind of discussing what preferred terms uh, people have and actually the word intelligence um, itself isn't without personal stigma for people um, and and actually for, for them it might be harder to work with than the word sensitivity it has more um, baggage attached to it from childhood than the word sensitivity um, and so you know as I as we were kind of discussing this in the haven the conclusion pretty much is that that, that there is nothing perfect when it comes to this um, and so we've got to hold I think hold this all loosely everyone connects to different metaphors and images with this stuff um and i think uh the the more the more pe people this stuff reaches the more necessary it's going to be to to try and let go to well to let go of trying to define it in one way um and the way for it to reach more people is to encourage a range of descriptive terms to emerge i think um like yeah i think different descriptors can point um people to to the same core principles in languages that particular cultures or particular groups might use um, i don't know if this is possible but it feels like something we've got to explore um, because otherwise we we run the risk of excluding people um, i don't know is it possible to do this and to keep the core research at the heart of it i have no idea tell me what you think of this um, but yeah like when we were discussing it in the haven many, many think of intelligence as being um, they attach it to like being educated um, or experienced. It's scoring high on IQ tests. It's being kind of um, like more, um, I don't know, elite in terms of knowledge, in terms of those things, uh, education and that kind of thing. So the question of what intelligence looks like came up. You know, are we going to be judging one another's performance 
um, on whether they deserve this label. Um, are they going to be sort of, I don't know, is, will it encourage performative behavior, certain ways of acting that in order to be accepted as satisfactorily uh, intelligent, as satisfactorily sort of earning their worth within that label. Um, and, and when I asked about alternative favorites to highly sensitive person, people suggested uh, things like sensory attunement, uh, sensory depth, sensory awareness. Um, so there's a whole range of different ways that people like to, to think about it and talk about it. And, and these were sort of, yeah, just within quite a small community, uh, some, some other favorites. So, yeah, I just wonder um, whether, whether this is a moment where we're going to be sort of seeing and using more, a wider variety of terms to describe sensory processing sensitivity. Um, there, there was a, a general sense as well that there is a need to have a distinction between the language used in research, so that SPS, um, and uh, distinction between that and by those, um, you know, so those people who are doing the work about the trait and the language used by the people who are affected uh, by the trait, who live with the trait. And as more and more highly sensitive people are becoming aware of themselves across a range of different cultures and demographics and ages, we're going to naturally find people talking about the core work with a range of different words and images and contextual frameworks as well. So, yeah, I mean, in conclusion, we probably have to worry less about the term we use and more about describing this stuff in ways that are natural to each of us so that we can connect with people, we can speak the same language so that we uh, get this stuff into the hands of more and more people and get it to the point where it is just universally accepted as a part of um, humanity. Uh, so, yes. So when I learned about high sensitivity for the first time, I spent time processing the stories from my life up until that point, you know, understanding things uh, with this new um, light, this new filter. What this process meant was I could start to become more aware and understand myself better so that I could take that forwards with me, grow into myself. Like um, I, I talk about kind of developing through journaling, developing a user manual for myself. You know, it's it's raising the awareness of, OK, w what has been going on? How did I respond to that? What would I do differently if I did it again? And just kind of circling around experiences and stories and building this um this sense of like okay what would be the most uh the, what would be a way to approach this so that i could be more effective um i could be more energized i could you know use my inner resources in a more um i don't know more sensible um wiser way or whatever um so yeah finding out firstly about kind of introversion and later on sensory processing sensitivity you know being a highly sensitive person or a deeply sensitive person. Um, I, I spent all this time kind of reframing experiences, uh, reliving memories within this new retrospective context. Um, and it changed a lot of stuff. Uh, I was able to start making sense of certain apparently um, kind of odd behaviors and thought processes, normalizing things that, that seemed maybe unusual at the time, things that, you know, weren't necessarily learned from uh, family or friends or whatever. Um, and, yeah, so I started with looking at um, at sensory um, over arousal. You know, I'm easily overwhelmed by things like bright lights, strong smells, coarse fabrics, or uh, sirens close by. It's one of the points on the on the self test. 
I always struggled under bright fluorescent lights. Uh, I didn't realize to the extent that it, like I had no idea it was because of sensitivity in the sense of being um, more easily overwhelmed or over aroused by um, kind of stuff through the senses. I just thought uh, school classrooms and uh, church halls and kitchens had to be oppressively bright just because, you know, that's what they had to be. Uh, with that kind of light, really bright light that casts no real shadow. Um, I was aware that I didn't like those environments, but until I found out about uh, sensory processing sensitivity, I, I didn't have a language for why uh, why I had a problem with them. Uh, and from there, I was able to kind of better manage those environments uh, or better manage myself within those environments if I you know, didn't have any choice uh, about being there. I could do that more effectively. And then going forward, design environments to maximise uh, energy and effectiveness. Uh, Bill Allen talked about high sensitivity as being like a, a camera lens. You know, a longer uh, shutter time, wider aperture means more data is coming in. Um, and this leads to noticing more and also the risk of overexposure and overwhelm. Um, if we don't um, kind of manage and, and are not mindful of how much of how much of an inward flow of information is uh, is pouring through, um, it may be reassuring for you to learn, as it was for me, that it is completely normal to find yourself reacting strongly to this kind of noise. Um, you know, the aperture is wider. It's not that people cope with the same amount of noise better; they don't actually receive as much noise because that their aperture is maybe smaller, is cl more, more closed um, because not as much of that environmental inf information is flooding through into their senses. So it's not that they can cope. We, we're, we're just unable to cope with the same amount of noise. It's literally that noise is coming in at different, um, at different volumes, at different rates. Um, so with a naturally wider aperture, highly sensitive people need regular downtime to internally recalibrate and process um, and recharge and this is kind of literally true when it comes to light you know it always surprised me that other people were like quick to turn the lights on or turn the lights up when I was enjoying a bit of low level mood lighting I'd always you know just enjoy it it, it was a, a revelation to discover however that a kitchen didn't need fluorescent strip lights um, and that was yeah it was kind of like cooking can actually be a pleasant experience rather than feeling like a, an industrial practice that you just got to get done um, I grew up in a in a vicarage where um, the function is always the priority over any kind of pleasantness. You know, we provided this accommodation, had very little control over changes that we might have wanted to make. Um, and so the cheapest and the most utilitarian option always seemed to win, um, which uh, that's I put that down to like why there were strip lights, um, fluorescent lights in the kitchen. They're kind of nice and utilitarian. They allow you to see everything. But, you know, you find them in prison, in, in prison cells for a reason, um, I imagine. And it was exhausting because this, this kind of thing is all or nothing. You either have all the light or you have all the darkness and there's, there's no kind of nice, subtle in between. Um, I remember when I was about 14 or 15, I was given a, a tub of white paint and some paintbrushes and rollers and a, a three-way ceiling spotlight for Christmas. Um, which was brilliant. I was absolutely delighted with that. I, d I decided a few months earlier that uh, I wanted to, um, you know, really pay attention to the ambience of my bedroom. Um, and so my parents, being my parents, saw Christmas as a good opportunity to kill the two birds 
the need for getting me a present and and also my desire to decorate the room uh, with a a very well-executed, smooth pebble. Um, So yeah, a a few days after Christmas, I got cracking with things, did the painting, finished it within a week, uh, worked out how to change a light fitting, got it to work, which is brilliant, um, and then added a dimmer switch, um, which worked beautifully. Um, And... It was around this time I, I discovered the music of uh, Chet Baker. I'd gone on a, a, a one of my, I, I used to go to the record store um, and every so often just pick a random record. I, 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 for some reason, just really liked his name. So bought one of his albums and flooded my room with, with jazz, soft, soft, trumpety, velvety uh, vocal, the velvety vocals of Chet Baker. Um, and, and yeah, suddenly my bedroom was this sanctuary rather than somewhere I had to go to sleep and that was it. I've got memory, many happy memories of moments just sitting on a, a nice tightly made bed, reading books and magazines, listening to jazz, dimmer, buzzing softly, providing small enough amount of life, light so that, you know, I could just about see the blurred outlines of the words in front of me. It was idyllic. It was home. Teachers always said I needed to put my hand up more in lessons and contribute to class discussions. It was that that, that was pretty much the the line in all of my school reports. Um, became my teacher imposed goal every year, um, and it was pretty infuriating. It was definitely not a consensual goal because I was like, I, I just I'm not interested in doing that. You know, silence gets interpreted in a variety of ways, doesn't it? It, it might be interpreted as disinterest. It might be a lack of confidence, shyness, disrespect, dislike for the teacher, whatever um, in that context. Um, And it's very rare that you'd have a conversation um, like I never had conversations about the source of quietness um, and reasons for my quietness varied. Most of the time I'd either be thinking about um, maybe the last question, which 15 minutes after the discussion ended, I'd have finally formulated a response to. Or because my experience of being picked out by teachers who can, the the, the teachers have this way of smelling fear um, and smelling the fear of the person who really doesn't want to answer the question because for whatever reason. Um, And, you know, those experiences, those moments can be traumatizing, like the brain fog, the empty headedness that meant I had nothing to contribute. So that sort of reinforces this fear of, of speaking up. Um, ironically, and they never seem to understand that. Um, but also when a question was thrown out and nobody would offer an answer, my natural assumption was, okay, well, if nobody else knows the answer, there's no way I know the answer. So maybe some issues of confidence. Um, even if I was thinking of an, uh, of an answer, I would just say to myself, that can't be right. You know, otherwise somebody else would have already said it. Um, and you know, invariably then it'd be like, oh no, it was right. Okay. Uh, next time, next time I'll speak up. But it wasn't until I was about 16 or 17 that I, I started to experience a, a difference in this context at school. You know, it was when I took um, English literature further and, and I started to explore uh, subjects and authors and poets. And what I began to see is like this, this amazing power of words. I loved seeing the way that words could convey in really simple ways the most complex feelings and profound ideas. Um, and I surprised everybody, not least myself, when I, I chose to then study English literature at, at A-level, so it's 17, 18. 
Um, but there's something about it that just really got a hold of me. Um, something grabbed me, was refusing to let go. Um, despite, like, I think what surprised people is like, it, I, I hardly read books when I was a, a kid. But I really got into it. And for the first time, I started to really enjoy class discussions as well. I began feeling like the it, it, the option was there to make an interesting contribution. I was freed by a world where there was no um, dogmatic rules of right and wrong. I think this was really supported by the teacher who encouraged this sort of, yeah, what matters is is just opening up the dialogue, just talking about what could be, uh, what could this mean? And and there being no sort of black and white um, binary sense of, yeah, that's either right or it's wrong. Um, you know, if you could justify why why you think a point and support it with some kind of, I don't know, creative evidence, then yeah, that's great. That's a brilliant uh, contribution. And that really um, was, a, was a game changer for me. Um, but it wasn't just the, the subject that made me feel um, inspired and comfortable to, to open up a bit more. It was the environment. Uh, we had a small class, very small class, um, and it was a pleasant place to be. Uh, the teachers, I say, it was was chilled out, and everything was familiar. You know, nothing was particularly overwhelming or surprising. Um, and and while there were many lessons where I wouldn't have said anything, um, it, I was no longer feeling like I'm called. I'm I'm being kind of labelled shy for that. It's it's a choice. It's a free choice, and and I felt free to stay quiet if I wanted, and free to be able to contribute if I had something worth saying. And that's a, that was a real gift. It was a real, and, and a really, I think why it stands out is because it was so rare, because it was like the exception. The theatre can be one of uh, the most bittersweet experiences for my high sensitivity. It definitely was when I was growing up. You know, on the one hand, it's this, this magical place, this place of raw art, beauty, romance. But on the other hand, there are, often loud unexpected bangs and periods of intense loud noise and shouting and stuff but then there are the bangs that I make myself um so this this kind of idea uh that I'm bothered by intense stimuli like loud noises chaotic scenes uh, I startle easily I'm made uncomfortable by loud noises these are parts of this of the um the sensitivity scale so I guess it's slightly ironic that the only thing I wanted to do when I was a kid was to to play the drums. I, uh, of all the instruments, come on. But there was something about the drums. I feared them. I revered them. I was desperate, maybe to control them. Um, there's a picture of me at, uh, about six or seven years old, sitting be, behind my cousin's drum kit. Uh, I had a, a drumstick in one hand, which was happily playing while I was using my other arm to kind of cover my ears to protect against the noise, uh, clearly developed quite the technique in order to to cope with the noise that I was making. Um, and it's a, a photo that captures perfectly the frustrations that I had growing up with that aspect of my high sensitivity. I, I loved the idea of uh, making lots of noise, but it was loud and uncomfortable. I ended up having to protect myself f from myself. Um, uh, maybe my love for drums stemmed from a desire to control the noise. Uh, I suppose the issue of noise for the highly sensitive person comes from those unexpected sounds that are out of our control. 
so it was kind of yeah maybe okay if I'm the one playing the drums then no, nobody can surprise me um, but I'd, I'm absolutely certain that it was there was something more than that it yeah the drums have have always they've had a hold on me since I can remember since being about three the pots and the wooden spoons and yeah but yeah so loud noises shock us they make us jump they hold a power over us that's hard to describe um it's not necessarily the sound itself that's the problem although you know i'd happily happily do without those 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 big bangy sounds but it's the prospect the anticipation of um being startled in some ways it's almost the knowledge that it's coming but you don't necessarily know when that is the overstimulating aspect of it to the point where when it does finally arrive, you, you don't know which way to turn. You, you just want to kind of hide, cover your ears, run away, whatever. You know, when I was a kid, I hated balloons because they might pop. Um, and I, you know, I hated seeing people playing with balloons because like, you don't know how dangerous that is. Um, I refused to take part in sort of Christmas crackers uh, for several years and spent every fireworks night, bonfire night, watching out the windows with my hands over my ears enjoying what I was watching but you know while everybody else was out in the garden or wherever I'd be sort of um yeah just not wanting to be there um same with thunderstorms loved watching light lightning um which is the dangerous part weirdly but I'd sort of yeah tremble in bed at the prospect of of thunderstorms strangely enough the older that I get the less I fear being startled um by unexpected and sudden noises. I, I I don't know if I've managed to regulate myself in, in ways over the years, quite potentially. I also find humour in jumping. You know, it's funny when other people jump. Um, so it must be the same when it happens to me. So it's kind of like a case of, okay, yeah, let's entertain. Let's <laughs> let go of my pride. Let it be. I'm a sucker for a good smell. Um, I think this comes with the territory of being sensitive. Um, I'd gone out of my way to follow and catch up with someone who smelt nice once. Uh, needed to know what fragrance he was wearing. Thankfully, he didn't hit me when I when I asked him. Uh, he just kind of laughed and told me. Um, but yeah, that, it's weird what was worth making a fool of yourself for. Um, but and I guess it follows. You know, smell is a sense as such. It's going to become more prominent if you're more sensitive. Maybe um, we've seen how it applies to lights and startling noises and textures and things like that but yeah the the highly sensitive person notices and enjoys delicate and fine nuances in these sensations on the flip side we can become easily negatively overwhelmed by um by more displeasing scents and tastes and noises uh which actually uh, i know for a lot of people includes kind of the chemical part of and and colognes as well you know, I, I enjoy a nice cologne, but I know a lot of uh, sensitive people who, who cannot stand uh, being around sort of chemical chemical s- smells and strong smells like that. Um, the effect that scents and tastes uh, and prolonged sounds can have on our minds is very interesting. You know, smells that make us uncomfortable can unsettle and stimulate us negatively. Uh, it's the effect of the input, not necessarily the input itself, that makes the difference. So we might be able to cope with short bursts of sensory information, but over a longer period, a repetitive noise or a a lingering smell um, can lead to a sort of a slow burn overstimulation. It can lead to that sort of 
background hum of fatigue. You know, for me, uh, think of extractor fans, uh, the sound of a boiler, um, distant lawnmowers, aeroplanes overhead, loud music, um, the vibration and sound of a vehicle in which I'm traveling. These can leave me kind of in this sense of slow burn over arousal, unable to fully concentrate and, and kind of increasingly tired. And I suppose, again, it might come with some things that are outside of your uh, control when you can't turn them off. Um, but yeah, uh, sometimes it's just you don't realize you're, you're being over aroused. Sometimes it's not this conscious sense of um, being able to identify exactly uh, what that source of sensory input is. Um, but it's still eating away at your nervous system over time. It's still it's still draining you, even if you're not fully aware of it. And Elaine Aaron uh, writes in The Highly Sensitive Person, it's important not to confuse arousal with fear. Fear creates arousal, but so do many other emotions, including joy, curiosity or anger. But we can also be over aroused by semi-conscious thoughts or low levels of excitement that create no obvious emotion. Stress is closely related to arousal. Our response to stress is to become aroused. And then when I must compete or be observed while performing a task, I become so nervous or shaky that I do much worse than I would otherwise. Um, now, this is one that <laughs> was was a real aha for me, I think. You know, one of the traits of the highly sensitive person is they become so nervous while competing um, that it affects their performance or being observed, it affects their performance. In other words, we can find the process of being observed or examined stimulating to the point of over arousal. Uh, you know, some people thrive off being observed. They even perform at their very best when they are. They require that kind of extra level of arousal to get the best from themselves. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I'm much more comfortable when no one is watching and I can, I'm much more competent when no one is watching, uh, or at least when I can remove my awareness that somebody is watching or that people are watching. When I'm aware of the gaze of others, that's when my mind does funny things. When I, that's what I'm focused on is I'm being observed. Then I kind of lose my ability to perform what I can otherwise do, um, often very easily. Um, interesting. It's not simply about the kind of numbers, uh, of people watching either. It's about the intensity. It's about the, the way that it's held as well. For example, you know, I feel better. I feel less stimulated performing uh, music in a, a room of, you know, hundreds, thousand people um, than if I'm in a small room doing that with a, a handful of people I know. Um, if it's, yeah, strangers, no problem. Um, but yeah, friends, people, I, people I'm close to, it's, it kind of is, is more stimulating in, in different ways. I remember a particularly haunting experience uh, when I took part in a traditional annual cricket match at school. You know, every summer it was this, this match was always organised between the sixth form, so 17, 18 year olds and the teachers, uh, 22 to 65 year olds. Um, uh, indulge me for a moment if you have no clue about cricket. I played a lot of cricket in my youth. Um, and, and when it came time for this student teacher showdown, um, I was like, yeah, great, this is brilliant but I hadn't been involved in a match for about two years it'd been a while since I played um, I'd done a bit of practice in the weeks running up to the game um, and I, I thought yeah I've got I'm I'm okay I haven't lost too much uh, of my pace I haven't lost kind of yeah my accuracy and stuff um, I'd been a pretty efficient and reliable um, medium medium-ish medium fast 
uh, pace bowler back in the day. And so the match match day rolled around, things were going okay, um, until I was thrown the ball and asked to bowl an over. Um, at this day, I, I don't know what happened when I started bowling, but it was really bad. It was really, really bad. Um, and I remember feeling everybody's eye on me. I felt that it was that sense of being observed. Um, they were watching, as I ran in for that first delivery, I could feel all these eyes looking at me. Um, and I, I reached the crease. I let go of the ball. Whoops. Came out of my hand so late that it bounced no more than about a meter in front of me um, before proceeding to sort of bob five or six more times and then stop dead about halfway down the pitch. So that was embarrassing, embarrassing start. Um, I went back to my mark, tried again. The next ball, the same thing happened. Damn it. Come on, Andy, you big useless lump. You're embarrassing me, I was thinking to myself. But it got worse. The third time, the ball actually went backwards because I let go of it so late. Um, so the thing about bowling is you, you kind of bowl, you do a little windmill action um, around your head, um, sort of vertical windmill. Um, and yeah, I let go of it once the ball was down by my thigh. Um, and it so it went backwards. Um, now, a thing you need to know about cricket um, is that if you bowl a no ball, the delivery doesn't count. And so you're over. Um, you might not know what an over is. Over is um, six balls that's bowled by one bowler um, in one go in a row. Um, so your over is you, is six balls, but bowl a no ball and you have to uh, you have to bowl it again and the batting team um, gets a run. All of my deliveries were no balls. Um, and I was embarking here on the world's longest over. Uh, the worse it got, the harder I tried and the harder I tried, the worse it got. Um, it was really bad. It was really embarrassing. Um, and this was happening in front of all the teachers. My teammates were losing their patience. I was completely alone doing something I knew I could do, but failing miserably. Um, the only saving grace was that I knew they all knew I could do it because they'd seen me play before. But in that moment, I was broken. I was really badly busted. Um, my body was not working. My mind was not working. Um, so eventually I just scrapped my run, run up and, and got through the remaining six balls uh, of the over from a, a standing start. Um, and I did get to the end of it in the end, but not before that irreversible experience of profound humiliation. Um, it, and it was that feeling of being watched. It made me nervous it made it was the feeling of being seen i think as well um that was horrific uh, as i say i was performing a task i'd done many times before with a decent amount of previous success but on this occasion the situation had got to me my brain was on overdrive and it just meant i couldn't do something that i could do um the thing we, we can't live life without being observed at least occasionally elaine aaron says uh, shyness is the fear Others are not going to approve of us. It's a response to a situation, not an always present trait. And we can often confuse this when we think of or talk about a shy person rather than someone who is being shy in a particular situation. When we reverse this assumption, it becomes clear that we can change our response to situations. In the highly sensitive person, it's over arousal and not necessarily fear that causes us to withdraw in certain situations. And it can be the same with performance. You know, the more that you perform 
in front of others, the less you might become um, over aroused, affected by the stimulation that comes from doing so. Um, and of course, that we are going to become over aroused when observed if it only happens rarely um, or if uh, we're kind of doing something that we do rarely in front of people. Equally, anyone you know, talking in front of others, if they rarely do it, is going to be a lot more socially uncomfortable and nervous than someone who does it a lot. But the more they do it, the more used to it they get. And eventually the more they will able, they'll be able to manage the stimulating aspects of um, that experience or similar experiences in the future. You know, worry as well can make us over aroused. And if we're worried about being watched, that can sort of add to this quick spiral of arousal overdrive that um, kind of then all takes place within our heads as well. It's kind of like the environmental noise comes from within in those situations. You worry that people are, are judging you. The other people are better at doing what you're trying to do. And even that you feel like a fraud because you don't deserve to be in the position you are. You know, what if we could change those scripts that we carry uh, around with us? So I'm going to combine two now of the uh, the characteristics on the sensitivity scale. Um, I find it unpleasant to have a lot going on at once. And I make it a high priority to arrange my life to avoid upsetting or overwhelming situations. Um, oh, and I'm annoyed when people try to get me to do too many things at once. I think they're all separate. Um, you know, most people agree, don't they, that it often feels like there aren't enough hours in the day to get everything done. And this can be especially true when you need a lot of downtime as highly sensitive people do uh, time spent doing um, nothing or, or chilling out is rarely seen as a valid reason not to do something especially if that something is what someone else wants us to do um, and so one of the the traits that many highly sensitive people experience is the propensity to get rattled if there's a lot to do at once um, you know when i have a, a task to do for someone or a deadline looming my instinct's often to put everything else on hold and get this thing done and until I've finished this, I, I can't go back to the other things. And the problem is there's always urgent things that require immediate attention. And if we're not careful, we can spend our entire life responding to um, to like unintentional or trivial attention-seeking things rather than proactively moving the ball down the field on, on projects and in th on tasks that, that we want to choose to do. And so before we know it, we might start to neglect uh, things like our health, uh, important relationships, creative projects, hobbies, um, other people, family, you know, all of those sorts of things can suffer. In his book, First Things First, Stephen Covey developed a well-known illustration aimed at showing people how to prioritise uh, their time or the importance of prioritising time. You, you take a, a box of rocks and a bucket of sand or pebbles, you get both the sand um, or pebbles and rocks to fit in the same container and if you try putting the rocks on top of the sand they sit above it and eventually topple out but putting the rocks in first means the sand or pebbles can be kind of poured in afterwards and they filter into the gaps and wrap around the big rocks um, and the, the kind of illustration is we need to get the big rocks in place first so that everything um, can find its place around it for the highly sensitive person it can be very tempting to say yes to lots of people um, who we don't want to displease um, and to kind of develop this huge to-do list and to respond to nothing but the urgent stuff um, and so it's important to make time for what is important and we must create margin in our lives and it's one of the one of the difficulties that I find as a highly sensitive person is needing plenty of 
of downtime, time switched off, time away from stimulating and over arousing places and activities. Um, but downtime is a big rock in the HSP's box. Um, and and if we if we neglect it, it kind of impacts negatively like everything else. Elaine Aaron says, what is moderately arousing for m- most people is highly arousing for HSPs. What is highly arousing for most people causes an HSP to become very frazzled indeed until they reach a shutdown point called transmarginal inhibition. Um, so transmarginal inhibition was a, a to- term coined by um, Pavlov to define the point at which a person or an animal might become so over aroused that they appear to shut down, uh, lose some social function or, or simply dissociate from what's going on around them. And this can happen to some degree when we are uh, completely overwhelmed by stimulation. Um, and so Elaine Aaron goes on and says stimulation is anything that wakes up the nervous system, gets its attention, makes the nerves fire off another round of the little electrical charges that they carry. Uh, we usually think of stimulation as coming from outside, but of course it can come from our body, such as pain, muscle tension, hunger, thirst or sexual feelings. Um, or as memories, fantasies, thoughts, or plans. Stimulation can vary in intensity, like the loudness of a noise, or in duration. It can be more stimulating because it is novel, as when one is startled by a honk or shout, <laughs> or is, uh, or in its complexity, as one is at a party and hearing four conversations at once, plus music. Um, to overwhelm might feel like... Um, losing perspective or becoming distracted we we might notice these things going on within us where it's like okay th- what what are our um, kind of emotional uh, mental physical responses to that state of over arousal you may obsess over normally unimportant and trivial things uh, you might throw yourself into a completely new project if you've got overwhelmed by the stress pressure and arousal of like the current work is putting on you Uh, and this is one of the things that I noticed in myself is when I'm getting overwhelmed by something I will often dive into something else that will then increase the the overwhelm the over arousal the stimulation so it's important to become aware of okay what what are our kind of default responses uh, what are the stimuli that can take us into like to these kinds of limits? Because um, it can become a serious psychological issue if you're constantly pushing yourself too far, uh, especially as someone who who can't and shouldn't stand prolonged exposure to um, sensory um, stimulation and over arousal in this sense. You know, I've experienced sensory shutdown many times uh, when I can no longer see the wood for the trees. I can't focus on anything. I just need to take myself into a dark room and do nothing for a while. Um, but this can be really hard if uh, there's no margin, if there's there's no if there's all these things that while you're in that dark room are still needing to be done. So this is where it's kind of like working out the rhythms um, that, that we and the, the natural pace that we need in order to be most effective. Uh, another two of the uh, the characteristics on the sensory test is um, I'm deeply moved by the arts or music and I have a rich complex inner life. Now, I had two poetry fa- fascinations when I was kind of 16, 17. There was the, the poetic scribbles and vocal tones of Jim Morrison. For a while, I wanted to live the romantic life of an enigmatic rock star. 
didn't quite sort of picture exactly what that would look like. And I, I'm glad I didn't follow that, follow that road. Um, and also the great poets of the First World War. Um, I studied the, the Great War um, at school and I just was completely captivated by the stories of these young men, these teenagers fighting in the trenches, you know, the same age as me, uh, some even younger. And, and off they went, unaware that many of those who would be lucky enough to survive were about to lose their minds in the field uh, fields of Europe. And so it was like this kind of jingoistic fervor of the outward journey was shaken up by profound experiences of emotional, psychological and existential upheaval. And so this poetry really spoke to me deeply. It, it kind of, I, I think, enhanced um, levels of, of empathy and compassion with certain things. And it opened me up to... to um, when it came to see the the potential power of creativity as well to express really complex um, and and dark ideas, you know, music, poetry, and art could be more than just um, pretty sounds and nice words and colourful pictures. Um, it wasn't necessarily there to make your audience feel good. Um, it was there to to connect. It was there to speak, to say something. And so, I saw music and poetry as an opportunity to experiment and to play. Um, and began to feel kind of this freedom to connect with ideas and emotions that weren't necessarily at the surface of everyday life and to use those things. I, I started writing poetry and lyrics and um, and songs. I took songwriting a lot more seriously uh, at that point and it became clear to me that art is really a key to bypassing the busyness of the mind and get direct access to the heart. It was kind of... that I. But it was then I began to sort of develop these creative processes that allowed me to create without thinking about what I was creating and then to kind of make sense of that is very much a, I suppose, a, a cathartic, a therapeutic process. Um, and in that sense, I, I, you could say that music is my mother tongue. I love to speak it. I love to explore it. I find um, new words and interpret the old ones. It's a language that I will never master, but it's one I'll never be able to escape and one uh, I will never forget how to feel, um, and 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 it's like through music, um, I can say things that I can't define. It's like um, Flannery O'Connor says, "I write because I don't know what I think until I read what I say," and I love that. I think it's the same with music, except to be more accurate to say that I create music because I don't know how I feel until I play and then when I'm playing it doesn't matter anyway because the music is the sweetest therapy art often requires the fuel of emotion to power the engine the tank willingly accepts my anger my joy my confusion my disappointment my sadness my loss my suffering art is the vessel to express the inexpressible to speak the unspeakable and to find comfort when words are not enough to make me feel better we're all wired with a natural connection to art and everyone carries music in their soul where words stop and language ceases art lives on it's the fully static yet ever-changing transcendent truth at the heart of the human experience as bill allen said a lot of artists and musicians are highly sensitive and that makes sense you know when we process and experience things deeply we connect with the deeper aspects of the human experience Elaine Aaron says she sees each life as an individuation process, one of discovering the particular question you were put on earth to answer. Now, this can sound a little lofty. <laughs> I know some people can't connect to this kind of language, uh, including me, really. Like it's a cause of great overwhelm for, for people to feel like, 
oh, my the, the question I was put on earth to answer. Um, I need to find my grand purpose, my my reason for being here. Um, and and I, that's often unhelpful. But I do like the idea of recognizing the questions, identifying, becoming aware of the questions that just seem to be there for us at different times through life. The things that won't leave us alone. What are those little niggles that arise again and again throughout our lives? For me, the word gentleness, that's definitely one. Um, and I've noticed in large part, thanks to my music, that um, and, and that kind of access to that unconscious process that I just mentioned through the kind of lyric writing um, and, and through whatever comes out, like when I'm um, certainly when I'm in the stages of writing songs, it's it's not a an intentional conscious process where I'm writing deliberate lyrics. It's it's kind of responding to whatever is coming out of my uh, kind of coming out of those sessions of writing. Um, and I f- find that, you know, these, these other um, things like violence, freedom, control, these are, these are all themes that seem to pop their head through the surface and are present themes in a lot of my, um, a lot of my work, a lot of my creative um, writing. We see things that other people either don't see, refuse to acknowledge or just accept as normal. And we can't settle until we respond in a way that feels satisfactory feels like we've done something with it this requires sensitivity and intuition and is why so many highly sensitive people are pulled towards non-traditional careers the arts and self-employment you might recognize the kind of intuition mentioned here it speaks in ways that can sometimes feel very confusing and contradictory and at times even sort of paralyzing you might just know or feel that something is right or wrong, but you can't identify, you know, what to do with that feeling or idea, and you can't necessarily find a source for it. So you can't justify it. You can't support it with evidence. It's therefore worth remembering and frequently reassuring yourself that patience is required and that your whole life is a journey through and around individuation in this sense. Anthony Storr said, no creator is ever satisfied with he has done indeed the works of an artist are the outward and visible signs of his his inner development as a person um this is also a deeply resonant idea you know the work never ends we never get there there is no there but then that's the point and it's the questions that won't leave us alone that give rise to our creative expression as we attempt to respond to them in different ways never quite grasping it fully at any point along the road Another characteristic on the test is that other people's moods affect me. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a uh, professional football or soccer player. Um, Other than drums, it was pretty much all I wanted uh, to do with my life. You know, I was out in the garden every day, kicking the ball around, imagining the unfathomable glory of scoring cup winning goals for uh, Man United, who I used to support. Don't support them anymore, I'm afraid. Um, Stockport County uh, all the way now but the dream was shattered when I uh, started playing competitive matches first at school and then more significantly during my very brief stint playing for a local club Um, and after kind of reframing my experiences in light of of high sensitivity I, I was able to understand why actually I didn't much enjoy playing competitively one of the most significant factors was the fact that you know, we did this under observation by um, 
very intense, crazed, sometimes bloodthirsty parents. Uh, it's, it's such a strange culture. Um, and there, there was a world of difference between a kickabout in the park with my friends and then this match day situation where kids and parents had seemed to kind of lose all perspective and sense of fun. You know, it became like some kind of war um, on the pitch. And I really didn't in, didn't enjoy spending time with people who acted like ultra competitive, win at all costs, hate filled warriors. I remember stepping into the changing room for for my first club match. Felt completely overwhelmed by the atmosphere. The, the mood felt different from the training. Uh, it was so much more intense, so much heavier, um, and I really struggled with it. You know, I was giving up my. Tuesday night, sometimes Thursday night too, and Sunday afternoon to get kicked <laughs> by other players and to get verbally abused by strangers. I was like, yeah, no, it's it's fine. Um, I I reached that point where I was like, that's that that's the end of my football career. I think I, I scored a um, spectacular goal in my final game, and at that point I said, yeah, that's enough, no more. Uh, the the manager of the team at that point was was like, yes, um, really satisfied with your with your trial period. Um, and offered me a contract to sign for that team. Uh, but I, I said, no, nah, I'm, I'm fine. I don't want to play anymore. Um, and that was that. In her book, The Introvert Advantage, Marty Olson Laney um, wrote that highly sensitive people are born with a, a certain cluster of traits that are often described as a sixth sense. They're extremely perceptive, intuitive and observant with finer discrimination than most of us. They may stay away from social engagements because they dread the agonizing flooding of their senses. Um, yeah, maybe you can intuitively sense the presence of an elephant in the room without knowing anything about the people in it or their circumstances. You might be able to identify, uh, like romantic chemistry between two people without any obvious indications of their attraction being externally projected. Uh, maybe you find yourself thinking about something that someone else is about to say, or you, you kind of just know which seemingly unrelated topic of conversation is about to come up. Um, I, I freak myself out with this one that that happens more often than I care to imagine. It's so weird. Um, and I suppose without realizing we're kind of picking up on environmental signals and subliminal messages that are traveling between and around us. There are things stimulating and triggering those ideas. Um, a lot of highly sensitive people should just know things without being able to explain how uh, or why. And this makes for a lot of positive experiences you know we, we might be able to subtly change the mood of a group or a room if we can identify okay this is these are the kind of negative factors in this environment this is having an adverse effect on things maybe something needs to be said or uh, something needs to change if some music goes on or lighting changes or whatever um and you know that the, the this is part of that the the characteristics of high sensitivity is, is being aware of what is needed to make people feel at ease or you know where how how someone's needs might need to be met or or whatever, um, and of course all of the intuition, observation, perception, and sixth sense become compromised when you're over aroused. Like if there's a lot going on, um, it's very hard to then tap into that stuff. Um, and so again, that's where it's important to kind of manage energy so that you you're able to um, see and and access the the parts of sensitivity that can give you a a real um, can benefit well not just you but like the environment and potential um uh for for what's going on in in the community as well like the collective experience um 
And I, yeah, I wrote, some days there's electricity in the air. Some days are heavy. Some days are light spirited. I think that's just my, I was kind of think, reflecting on um, days at school when you just, there was sometimes heavy days. Where it was even, you know, there's going to be a fight today. <laughs> there's something, something in the atmosphere. Um, it's kind of a stormy atmosphere and you, you know that it's going to push people too far. Um, and people, I, I th- and I think this is the interesting thing is maybe, maybe you can feel it um, in a conscious, more conscious way as a, as a highly sensitive person. Um, but it still has an impact on people who wouldn't describe themselves as, as highly sensitive. They kind of react to those atmospheric or those kind of emotional things going on. Um, but not necessarily with any sense of control over it. So yeah, I hope you've enjoyed this little dive into my um, processing in light of learning about sensory processing sensitivity and reading the highly sensitive person book uh, way back when. You know, it's such a helpful exercise to do because it allowed me to reframe certain experiences as well as begin building that user manual for myself that I talked about. You know, through journaling over the past ten years, been able to kind of make a record of experiences which I can use to make things work better and more effectively um, and kind of use as a as a part of my planning and how I'm going to approach things um, as I'm um, going forwards. You know, it's allowed me to be proactive in setting boundaries that make the outcomes I want more likely uh, to occur, the outcomes that, that matter to me. Um, and so this is at the heart of what I see in the purpose of using labels like highly sensitive person. It's not part it's not about being part of a club or thinking of, of ourselves as, as special or different or whatever, but it's a, about empowering ourselves by raising awareness, by understanding um, who, more about who we are, how we operate and what we can do to make the most effective pathways for our goals and our desires and our um, creative projects and relationships and everything to, to come to life and to be the best that they can be. There's more and more research being done into sensory processing sensitivity all the time. I really hope this field begins to uh, or continues to to grow and grow so that it can really become part of my mainstream dialogue. So it's not just getting the 15 to 20 percent of people to learn who they are. It's about just normalizing this for everybody. Um, you know, the biggest advances will happen as sensitivity becomes understood by society at large, not as something that belongs to a community of people but it belongs within the whole. It's part of our collective evolutionary survival strategy, which requires people all along the spectrum of sensitivities to belong um, and become who they are at those levels of um, of sensory processing. You know, I feel like things have come a long way, even in the past 10 years since I've been aware of, of this trait. I feel like I've become comfortable talking about this stuff in a way that feels natural and positive. And I've loved supporting people turning their relationship with sensitivity from one of uh, maybe resentment or confusion into uh, one of integration and awareness and uh, a sense of you know wholeness in in who they are uh, i don't believe this stuff needs to stop us from doing anything that we feel compelled towards doing but we sometimes have to work out alternative ways to do it which enhance our chances of success and allow us to enjoy the process as well looking for those ways to do it in in our own rhythms in our own ways might be slightly different from the way other people might approach it but i think there are there are always options there are always things that we can do um, to make those things that matter to us um, come come to be so 
yeah, let me know if you've got any thoughts on what I've shared in this episode. I'd really love to hear from you. Um, Otherwise, until next time, remember that even when it appears not to be, gentleness is always an option. Just one more thing quickly before we finish. Because you're listening to this, I imagine you are a reflective person with a caring, creative and compassionate spirit. And I want to just quickly tell you about The Haven, which is a virtual village for quietly creative misfits just like you. Whether you're looking to build lasting friendships with other gently unconventional people or you simply need some respite from the world's noise right now, I've built The Haven for you. With its cafe, theatre, library and fireside, it's a calm bubble of support and encouragement for gentle rebels. It's currently the autumn season in the membership and we're looking at the themes of change, belonging and serenity during September, October and November. Through our conversations in the community as well as resources like the private podcast feed, videos, interviews and short courses, we dive into these themes and ask how we can build healthier, happier and more connected lives in sync with our natural, gentle rhythms. Perhaps you know intuitively that there's so much more within you waiting to burst into life but maybe you don't quite know where to start or how to bring it out in a way that feels good to you. Well, I'd love to welcome you in and show you around The Haven. You can learn more at the-haven.co or you'll find a link in the description for this episode. See you later. Bye-bye.